When a child is diagnosed with a serious, life-threatening illness, the entire family is affected. These stories from those families, especially when faced with challenging decisions, will move and inspire you. The parents are courageous and resilient in their determination to keep their family strong. The Courageous Parents Network promotes their insights so that others may also find hope and strength. Welcome to the Courageous Parents Network podcast series. In this episode, CPN's Jennifer Seidman talks with her son Noah, older brother to Ben, about growing up with a sibling with San Filippo Syndrome. A college student at the time, Noah speaks honestly about Ben's final days, witnessing his death and processing his own grief. My name is Noah Seidman. I am 25 years old and my younger brother Ben had a rare genetic disorder called San Filippo syndrome, and he unfortunately passed away about five years ago. So I guess I'm here in capacity as a sibling. I'm Jennifer Seidman, and I am mom to Noah, who is my oldest child. Benjamin was my middle son who died of San Filippo syndrome, and I also have a daughter named Isabel, who is 20. When you went to college, what was going through your head because you had to have known that there was a 95% assurity that while you were there, that Ben would probably die. I knew that, I was certainly aware of it, and every time before I left, and I, I sort of made sure that nobody else really noticed, I went and sat with Ben for quite a while and had something of a one-sided conversation with him. And I think that freshman year when I left, it was kind of a pleading, you know, I don't know if I can handle both, right? The change of college and, you know, having to run back for you. And then I think that maybe had matured a little bit by sophomore year when I left and had a different tone that was, you know, I, I appreciate all of this and I hope I'll be ready when it happens. And I think that my mindset was really not preparing myself to deal with it, but more knowing that I was going to make it home somehow. That was sort of all I was gearing up for. I was like, whatever happens, I'm going to get there. Honestly, I, I don't think that I was ready to engage with, with Ben's death, but I knew very deep down that as long as I was there, that was sort of going to be the sticking point for me, right? I think that it would have been infinitely harder for me to, to unpack and, and to come to terms with and really grieve if I, if I hadn't been present. And so that was sort of all of my energy was devoted to that. I was actually telling someone earlier today about how you being there was sort of an accident in the sense that we thought that Ben was getting better when we called you and said, well, do you, do you just want to come home or how do you feel about it? But we think he's getting better. And I was curious if you could tell me about what you were thinking when we called you. I feel like I really heard it in your voice. And it was that moment that clicked for me. And I know that I had been preparing myself for it for a long time, but it sounded to me like the tone was, get here. My roommate was in the room while I was having this conversation. And so I immediately turned and said to him, you know, my brother's in the hospital and he was a good friend of mine at the time and has become a better one since, but knew, knew about Ben and also reached out to a handful of my other really close friends and sent the emails that I had written 
a long time ago, freshman year, to my dean that, you know, my brother was sick and that it might mean that I was leaving. And I believe that we had this conversation the day that I left, actually, because it ended with me getting on the phone with my grandfather because he had been the one who getting me a plane ride was farmed out to. And then I actually started to get on the phone and find someone with a car who could get me to an airport. And I think I ended up taking like two or three attempts before I found a friend who was like, yeah, I can, I can drop everything and drive you. I remember the conversation being centered around, he's in the hospital, this is what's happened, and we're considering a surgical option. And that was, that was sort of the moment where I think I was like, ah, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's time for me to be here. I remember when you walked in the room, it was pretty late at night, and I remember feeling really relieved that you were there because it was getting scary, and I was trying hard not to let you know that it was getting scary, mm -hmm. and, but just knowing that, that you, were, you were there did, for me, make it a lot better. It was like one less thing that I had to be worrying about. Yeah, so I got out of the airport, and my aunt Cynthia picked me up from the hospital, and I got in and Andrew actually met me, I believe, at the door of the hospital and walked me up to Ben's room. And you were sitting there with him. And I don't know where dad was at the moment, but he came in afterwards. And I think I sat with Ben for maybe an hour and a half. And then actually Erin came and got me because she had been home with Isabel. And I remember getting home, I mean, it was late, right? I got in at maybe 11 and I don't think I sat down at home until maybe two in the morning, but I, I think I pulled out my computer and started writing. You know, I, I had no idea why I had decided to do it, and it almost feels like a bit of a betrayal of, of hope at that moment. It was just sort of what I was driven to do. Um, and I don't think it was as focused as, as later when I was writing the eulogy, but it was, there's so much I'm thinking about right now. I need to just start putting my thoughts somewhere external. You know, Daddy and I struggled about what Ben's end of life really looked like that day in the hospital. And clearly we were not prepared because we didn't know, it came really fast and furious for us too. So we were caught off guard, but at the same time, we also had to parent you and Isabel. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I actually have spoken with another mother who said I would never let my other two children witness or have to be part of you know, turning off, essentially we had to turn off the ventilator for Benjamin and, and let him die. I'm also curious to know if, if you think we thought through the decision right or included you enough in the decision. I think yes. I think that the fact that I got the choice, right? It was never, you can't come in or you have to come in. It was, would you like to and are you sure? And obviously, we were making that decision in a space of minutes instead of days or years or whatever would have been most comfortable. But the truth is, no one was ready. And if I wasn't there, I just wouldn't have access to the same, the same sort of honesty and ownership of that, of that moment and that decision to unpack in the years to come. Yeah, I was 20 and I wasn't ready. And neither were you and neither was dad and nor was Isabel. But we got to be there and you can never unmake that decision. And so I'm really glad that I got to be there and I got to be part of it, even though it is objectively one of the worst moments of my life. It was hard, it was terrible. I mean, holding your brother's hand and feeling it go cold is, <laughs> holy shit. Yeah, yeah, I, 
still too much to this day, and I imagine it will be probably forever, but I, I would rather too much than not enough. But no, I, I don't feel like that responsibility was ever forced on Isabel or I. I think that our entire lives, the way we were raised and the way that we interacted with Ben and with you guys and making decisions around that was always one of, of personal responsibility and empowerment and being able to choose what was best for you. And the trust that regardless of what choice you made, the support would be there afterwards. And I think that that, that part is so much more important because that you know, you can control the support and you can control the way you handle it afterwards. So, the, you know, the rest is just, it is what it is, and you got to deal with it. How has my reaction to, to being there for Ben's last moments changed over time? I think that there are a lot of ways to answer that for me. So the first one is that I for better or for worse, fix moments in time and sort of polish them to perfection. And so that was my first instinct, right? I took all of Ben and all of my experience with him and tried to sum it up in, in like a fortune cookie's worth of wisdom and tried to spin it as positively as possible and make it something that I could live by. And well, that's beautiful, it's also really limited. Right? So I have turned an entire person, you know, struggles and failures and successes and triumphs and all of this into, into a single fixed finite thing. And so it was great because I could interact with that and always have sort of this positive spin to it. That is a great way to tackle a day when you're grieving. You can say, this is the hardest thing that I have ever done. And I'm tired and it's the end of the day. But I did it. And I have this entire lifetime of successes looking back when I think of my days like that. And so I know that even when I'm struggling to climb the mountain tomorrow, I'm going to do it. Do you feel either today or have you felt in the past, particularly I think when Ben was alive, sort of a pressure to be perfect or a pressure to be without fault? I wouldn't phrase it as a pressure to be perfect. I would say that there was a really, really deep-seated desire to bring solutions and not problems, always. And so any time that I approached my like genuinely overburdened parents who were dealing with, you know, life with a, with a sibling with a chronic disability is a crisis every day, right? That is, that is the normal. And so as a kid growing up, the idea of coming and saying, hey, I know that the house is burning down, but I got a scrape on my knee is, is terrifying, right? Because not only are your problems pale in comparison, but you're just adding fuel to a fire that you want to help put out. And so, yeah, I think it made me unwilling to share anything that was less than perfect. It was either I can handle this on my own or I'm not going to make them aware of it and I'm going to try to fix it. I mean, it's so obvious why we got there, right? Like it makes so much sense that that's, that's how I think about things. And it's the fault of nobody, right? That That is sort of a reality. But it is something that that has caused me a lot of trouble still down the line. And I think that the other half of it, and I, I was struggling to explain this to someone recently, it's really, really hard to 
to criticize yourself and to criticize the people around you in in a family environment like that because the idea is like you know I, I look at my mom and dad and they they're both working and they're they're working with my brother and they're also feeding my sister and I and making sure that we've got you know rides to all of our activities and all of that stuff and maybe a lot of times the question was do Noah and Izzy have enough and that's such an admirable thing and it's so crazy impressive that my folks were able to manage that that looking back and saying wow you know I was very rarely asked you know is this fulfilling are you thinking about things do you really like you know are not just your needs being met but are you are you growing are you learning more is a question that you can't I, like, I don't want to expect my parents to have to ask that, right? It, it seems so unfair, given all that's going on. Wait, you didn't want us to have to ask that because you felt like Ben was asking that of us all the time and you wanted to less ask it, or we should have known to ask you those things and we didn't ask them. Yep. And you didn't want to push because you didn't want to put us in that position. And even now, it's really, really hard for me to say something like that. It's so hard for me to take the two thoughts of, yeah, there were moments when I was struggling or needed more or would have benefited from more, but also my folks were doing all of this. And so, you know, in conversation with just my mom, perhaps, I might be able to better say that, but with, with someone else in the room or explaining it to another or even just to be honest, admitting it quietly to myself is really, really hard to do without immediately hedging and saying, oh, but, you know, my folks did such a great thing because the truth is they did. And that's, that's what I remember. So I'm going to ask you another question, a different dynamic. You know, Ben had things he wasn't capable of doing, not by any fault of his own, but because of his disease. And yet, in some ways, I am guilty of this, we almost made him perfect like even the other day i put up ben's the most carpenter of all my children and how do i really know that's true i don't really know it's true because in fact i don't know if ben could have ever really got old enough to express all of the things that would have made him the most right so what's the implication of that on you and isabel in response to you saying he did that i absolutely did it too i think that everyone does because you want to, you want to give back some of what, what the disease took away from him. And did I feel pressure from that? Absolutely, yeah, I definitely did. I don't know how early I became aware of it, but I certainly was. Certainly in a difficult mental place to be in when you know that one of your siblings can literally do no wrong. But to, to know that it's also bad to begrudge them that is, is sort of a, a weird catch-22 but again it, it's so hard to begrudge him that that even looking back now you know a little bit older and a little bit more mature I find it hard to fault it right mm -hmm. I, I can say oh yeah you know it definitely led to these sort of negative habits of my own and these these bad tendencies but I can't fault him and I can't fault myself and I can't fault you guys for for building that up of him Right, so how do I feel like my relationship with my parents is, is given the way, you know, all of the stuff that we experience together, is it different from my peers, is it the same? 
The answer, I think, is I have no idea. Everyone's relationship with their parents is so unique and individualized that I'm not going to comment on, on how it compares to others. I think that I have an incredibly close relationship with my parents. And I think that also doesn't preclude having a bad relationship sometimes. I think that you can be close and good and close and bad and everywhere in between, and the two are almost different sliding scales. And so it's been a journey for all of us to learn how to communicate and how to have a relationship that's not in crisis. Because our, my entire life growing up was, was defined, our relationship was predicated on there is a problem that we need to solve. And part of it was, was functionally insolvable, right? There was no cure for my brother to be found despite all of the work that we put into it. And part of it was a day-to-day, -day. Ben's not taking his pills, how can we fix this? Or he's having trouble standing up, or you know, what have you. And so it's weird for us to communicate now not in crisis. We only call each other and reach out when, when there's a problem that needs solving. And so in that specific thing, our relationship is great. We're really good at, at that sort of stuff, but we're so bad at the day-to-day at the -day and sort of the like medium intensity thing. hard to build that as a sort of young adult away from home and trying to be independent but also recognizing that wow like some of my friends just call their mom and chat about random crap for an hour after their work day and I I don't know how to do that we always have to talk about something I don't think we honed the skill about how to have fun I don't think we honed a skill that said let's just do something that doesn't matter and doing something that doesn't matter. There wasn't the luxury of time in our household for a really long time. And it not, not so much when you were really little and Ben was little and there was a lot more ability to have happen. And so, but that's not part of yours and Isabel's memory track, especially Isabel, because she really grew up into Benjamin's disabilities, but we didn't hone the skill of how to just be, we honed the skills of how to be productive and it does feel like something we're just learning how to do. When people would ask me how you handled Ben versus how Isabel handled Ben, with Ben being in the middle and you know you being the oldest and she being the youngest and you know you're a boy and he's a boy and she's a girl so there's a lot of variables in there but I would say to people I would tell them a story and, and sort of liken it to this that you felt loss and I think to a certain degree anger or that was my impression when you were younger over what was happening to you. Whereas Isabel felt or approached it from the angle of a caretaker and a nurturer. And that somewhat is because she's a girl, but I also think that because when Isabel was four and starting to become aware of her relationship with Ben, he was already developmentally declining and becoming four and they she could nurture him because she could see that he needed it like a younger, like as if he were her younger sibling. Mm -hmm. And you had the opportunity to play baseball in the backyard with Ben, and then all of a sudden he couldn't play baseball. And so for you, I always sensed, in some ways, a bigger loss than I ever sensed it for Isabel. And I'm curious to hear what you think about that. I think that because I got to know Ben in a much greater and more personal sense than Izzy did, 
I think that I felt more acutely the loss and the decline, really. I think the other half of it is the two of us decided to handle it in, in really fundamentally different ways. So I sort of took all of that all of that loss and all of that fear and all of that sadness and all of that anger. You're right. I, you know, I was angry that I was sort of being robbed of a brother and robbed of time that my parents had to spend and robbed of the ability to go on vacations and to go to restaurants and all of this stuff that you think is such a normal part of, of growing up. And I sort of put that on the outside and I got, I got really good at talking about it as almost a method of avoiding it. So I, I sort of wore that, that part of my identity in a much more public way. And I think that people were, tricked isn't the right word, but swayed by the fact that I was willing to talk about and engage with this so readily. And Izzy really wasn't and didn't. It wasn't because she wasn't engaging with those things. She, to some extent, handled it a little bit more honestly than me. I very quickly took what, what would have been my, my greatest weakness and my, and my biggest insecurity and, and sort of put it on the outside as a means of not really having to, to engage with it as much. And Izzy, to her credit, I think internalized a lot more of it and, and when she was struggling with it was able to actually you know, let people know, which is something that I struggled with. I don't speak for her and I really don't know what exactly it was that made her figure that out. But I'm really glad for it. I think that I think that it was good. I think that she was aware enough to not be taken in by the pressure to be so outwardly, you know, engaged and involved with Ben all the time. And I don't think that she lost anything from not doing it. I don't think that she loved Ben less or thought about him less than, than any of us did for all of that. I think that she just struck a balance much sooner. Did you lose something for all of that? I think so, yeah. I think I really did. What did you lose? By putting something so personal out in front of me, I ended up not ever really sharing the things that were truly private to me without a lot of prompting or a lot of trust or a lot of time. And I think that it is a little bit handicapped me from doing so even going forward. What do you do when you feel sad about Ben now? Do you cry? Or order Chinese food. One of the two. There are a couple of ways that Ben crops up somewhat regularly in my life. And the first one is the one that bothers me the most. And it's sort of this, this cycle of self-blame where I'm like, oh, Ben's death is my fault. Not true. Absolutely, right? I know that. Everyone knows that. Do you think it's because you feel some sort of guilt? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Guilt over what? Guilt over not trying? Guilt that it was him and not you? What's the guilt? All of the above. I think that I... Couldn't have done anything to make Ben live. I know. That's what I'm saying. That's like, immediately upon having that thought, you know, and everyone who would have that sort of thing knows that it doesn't make sense and that it's wrong. But it happens, right? The, the guilt is inescapable. And so the trick is not hiding from memories for fear that they'll trigger the guilt or or trying to to condition yourself to never feel guilty because you know sometimes i don't i just don't think your brain makes sense and so you have to learn yourself and get a little bit better at pulling yourself out of it how do you feel the death 
There are three things that my neurotic side says to me. The first is that you're one of the only people that remembers all of Ben and you're starting to forget. And that is such a loss as to be inexcusable. And the counterpoint to that is, yes, I am forgetting. I, I absolutely am. Like, I, that's just how it works. I need to accept that my memories of him are not always going to be pristine and crystal clear and that some of them are eventually going to fade. And I can't say, oh, but I'll hang on to the important ones. I'm pretty sure I will, but maybe not. And so the, the real answer is, yes, I'm going to forget. But it's also so much more important to move forward with what you have than it is to dwell on that forgetting. And the second one is, man, I could have done all of this stuff better. I could have figured out something sooner and known to spend more time with him. I could have been less frustrated by this or that. And again the the trick is just to say yeah i could have right but i was frustrated and i didn't know and i had other priorities and i was trying to do all of these other things and and it happened if i want to hang on to this idolized picture of ben he absolutely would have forgiven me and so i better get about forgiving myself and move forward and the last one is is the unfairness of it all it's the you know why the hell did this happen? And why did it happen in such a way that it had to affect me? And that one comes up the least often, which I think is nice, um, but can be the hardest for me to sort of shake. And, you know, I've gone through a lot of iterations of how I deal with that. Sometimes it's, but yeah, it did happen. And, and again, the important part is not dwelling on it, but moving forward and taking with you what value you can, and not being afraid to engage with it when it comes up, which is very unspecific advice, because the answer is it's, it's a lot different every time that I think about it. Those are sort of the three big, like, you know, dark thoughts that sometimes cloud my mind. And so I think a lot of the process of being a sibling of a child with disability and, and grieving and moving on from it is being able to sort of hold these, these disparate thoughts and emotions together and to face them both. Whichever direction you choose, if it's only one, it's gonna end in, in heartbreak. If you only pick the, the sort of intellectual side, then you're gonna get all, you're gonna let all of the emotions sort of simmer and, and it's gonna be almost inaccessible. And if you only pick the emotional side, you're gonna be so full of bile and unhappiness that you're not going to be able to deal with it. You got to shoot straight down the middle and you got to face both. And that is hard. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do piece by piece because it's all one big thing. When you're feeling really, really glum about Ben, is there any one part of your time with Ben that, that you think about most? Like, is there any one situation or anything? And maybe there isn't, I just don't know. I'm just curious. I think that there's probably a, a rotation of about 30 things that I remember really fondly with Ben and really clearly still. Is there any one thing that you can't do now that Ben's gone? Yeah, a ton of things. I can't go for a walk with him. I, like, all of this stuff. Is there any one thing that you avoid because now oh, that Ben's gone? Oh, yeah. I cannot watch Arthur the Aardvark ever again. 
Not that I need to, because I could quote every single episode verbatim. I don't think that I could watch one of those without having to walk out of the room or break down. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I could. It was hard, I'll be honest. Remember, so I was home uh, right after graduation a couple years ago, and we were cleaning out the basement of a lot of the stuff that we had gotten towards the end of Ben's life. And Meaning equipment. Equipment, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things was this red stander, like a, a device that helped him stand up after he had gotten really sort of, you know, unsteady on his feet. And it was really freaking hard for me to dust the thing um, and take pictures of it to put it on Craigslist because I really hated that thing. And I hated that he needed it and I hated interacting with it. And, and it was just, there was no positive association with that machine and it made me remember all of that stuff. But... Beyond those two pretty specific things, I really try not to hide from any of the memories or any of the things that trigger memories because it just doesn't seem like a good way forward. So how do you unpack that baggage with somebody? If you're out on a first date with a girl and she says to you, so Noah, how many brothers and sisters do you have? What's your answer? I say two. I say I have a younger sister and I have a brother that passed away. And then what happens? They ask a follow-up question and I answer it. That's the thing. I can sort of boldface my way through talking about all of that without having to engage with it as emotionally as maybe it warrants. It's weird because it kind of skips a couple of tiers of intimacy and of knowing somebody and familiarity mm -hmm. in a way that probably isn't always the best, but it's sort of my, you know, one of my defense mechanisms. I don't shy away from that. I do try not to get too deep into it. Like, I will usually sort of, you know, answer, answer relatively concisely, just because nobody else needs to be subjected to that, necessarily. Is it that nobody else needs to be subjected to that, or is it because you want to hold that piece of it inside to yourself? I think the answer is probably a little bit of both. You know, it's certainly not a polite drinks conversational topic, and, you know, the reason that I don't I don't shy away or say I only have one sibling or not get into it is because I don't want to be dishonest. That That's certainly more important. Dishonest to who? Dishonest to the person? Both. Dishonest to Both. yourself? Everyone. Dishonest to Ben? Who Everyone. Right? That lying about that or misleading about that is dishonest just across the board, right? There's nobody who doesn't suffer a little bit of, of being misled. It's one of those things where I can talk about it very candidly with any level of, of familiarity with somebody, but the people that are important in my life and have stuck around are the ones that sort of come back to it with me later and get a little bit more. And it's weird because it's such an important part of who I am to be able to share this because I feel this really intense desire to help anybody who's in a similar situation. And I hope that, you know, some piece of what I said resonates with someone listening and they say, oh, you know, it, it might be okay or maybe I can figure this out or that doesn't sound quite right for me, but a piece of it works. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.